Chapter Seven of the Abbot's Ghost. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Ferguson. The Abbot's Ghost or Maurice Treherne's Temptation by Louisa May Alcott. A Ghostly Revel. Bless me, how dull we are tonight! exclaimed Rose, as the younger portion of the party wandered listlessly about the drawing-rooms that evening, while my lady and the major played an absorbing game of piquet, and the general dozed peacefully at last. "'It is because Maurice is not here. He always keeps us going, for he is a fellow of infinite resources,' replied Sir Jasper, suppressing a yawn. "'Have him out, then,' said Anon. "'He won't come. The poor lad is blue to-night, in spite of his improvement.' Something is amiss, and there is no getting a word from him. Sad memories afflict him, perhaps, sighed Blanche. Don't be absurd, dear. Sad memories are all nonsense. Melancholy is always indigestion, and nothing is so sure a cure as fun, said Rose briskly. I'm going to send in a polite invitation begging him to come and amuse us. He'll accept, I haven't a doubt. The message was sent, but to Rose's chagrin a polite refusal was returned. He shall come. Sir Jasper, do you and Mr. Anon go as a deputation from us, and return without him at your peril, was her command. They went, and while waiting their reappearance, the sisters spoke of what all had observed. How lovely Mrs. Snowdon looks to-night! I always thought she owed half her charms to her skill in dress, but she never looked so beautiful as in that plain black silk with those roses in her hair, said Rose. What has she done to herself? replied Blanche. I see a change, but can't account for it. She and Tavy have made some beautifying discovery, for both look altogether uplifted and angelic all of a sudden. Here come the gentlemen, and as I'm a Talbot they haven't got him, cried Rose as the deputation appeared, looking very crestfallen. Don't come near me, she added irrefully. You are disloyal cowards, and I doom you to exile till I want you. I am infinite in resources as well as this recreant man, and come he shall. Mrs. Snowdon, would you mind asking Mr. Treherne to suggest something to while away the rest of this evening? We are in despair, and can think of nothing, and you are all powerful with him. I must decline, since he refuses you, was the decided answer, as Mrs. Snowdon moved away. Tabby, dear, do go. We must have him. He always obeys you, and you would be such a public benefactor, you know. Without a word, Octavia wrote a line, and sent it by a servant. Several minutes passed, and the gentleman began to lay wages on the success of her trial. "'He will not come for me, you may be sure,' said Octavia. As the words passed her lips, he appeared. A general laugh greeted him, but taking no notice of the jests at his expense, he turned to Octavia, saying quietly, "'What can I do for you, cousin?' His colourless face and weary eyes reproached her for disturbing him, but it was too late for regret, and she answered hastily, "'We are in want of some new and amusing occupation to while away the evening. Can you suggest something appropriate?' "'Why not sit round the hall fire and tell stories, while we wait to see the old year out, as we used to long ago?' he asked, after a moment's thought. "'I told you so. There it is, just what we want,' and Sir Jasper looked triumphant. "'It's capital. Let us begin at once. It is after ten now, so we shall not have long to wait,' 
cried Rose, and taking Sir Jasper's arm, she led the way to the hall. A great fire always burned there, and in winter-time thick carpets and curtains covered the stone floor and draped the tall windows. Plants blossomed in the warm atmosphere, and chairs and lounges stood about invitingly. The party was soon seated, and Treherne was desired to begin. "'We must have ghost stories, and in order to be properly thrilling and effective the lights must be put out,' said Rose, who sat next to him and spoke first as usual. This was soon done, and only a ruddy circle of firelight was left to oppose the rapt gloom that filled the hall, where shadows now seemed to lurk in every corner. "'Don't be very dreadful, or I shall faint away.' pleaded Blanche, drawing nearer to Anon, for she had taken her sister's advice and laid close siege to that gentleman's heart. "'I think your nerves will bear my little tale,' replied Treherne. "'When I was in India four years ago, I had a very dear friend in my regiment, a Scotchman. I'm half Scotch myself, you know, and clannish, of course. Gordon was sent up country on a scouting expedition and never returned.' His men reported that he left them one evening to take a survey, and his horse came home bloody and riderless. We searched, but could not find a trace of him, and I was desperate to discover and avenge his murder. About a month after his disappearance, as I sat in my tent one fearfully hot day, suddenly the canvas door-flap was raised, and there stood Gordon. I saw him as plainly as I see you, Jasper, and should have sprung to meet him, but something held me back. He was deathly pale, dripping with water, and in his bony blue eyes was a wild, woeful look that made my blood run cold. I stared dumbly, for it was awful to see my friend so changed and so unearthly. Stretching his arm to me, he took my hand, saying solemnly, Come. The touch was like ice. An ominous thrill ran through me. I started up to obey, and he was gone. "'A horrid dream, of course. Is that all?' asked Rose. With his eyes on the fire, and his left hand half extended, Treherne went on as if he had not heard her. I thought it was a fancy, and soon recovered myself, for no one had seen or heard anything of Gordon, and my native servant lay just outside my tent. A strange sensation remained in the hand the phantom touched. It was cold, damp, and white— I found it vain to try to forget this apparition. It took strong hold of me. I told Yermid, my man, and he bade me consider it a sign that I was to seek my friend. That night I dreamed I was riding up the country in hot haste. What led me I know not, but I pressed on and on, longing to reach the end. A half-dried river crossed my path, and riding down the steep bank to ford it, I saw Gordon's body lying in the shallow water, looking exactly as the vision looked. I woke in a strange mood, told the story to my commanding officer, and as nothing was doing just then, easily got leave of absence for a week. Taking Yermid, I set out on my sad quest. I thought it folly, but I could not resist the impulse that drew me on. For seven days I searched, and the strangest part of the story is that all that time I went on exactly as in the dream. Seeing what I saw then, and led by the touch of a cold hand on mine. On the seventh day I reached the river, and found my friend's body. "'How horrible! Is it really true?' cried Mrs. Snowdon. "'As true as I am a living man. Nor is that all. 
This left hand of mine never has been warm since that time. See and feel for yourselves. He opened both hands, and all satisfied themselves that the left was smaller, paler, and colder than the right. Pray someone tell another story to put this out of my mind. It makes me nervous, said Blanche. I'll tell one, and you may laugh to quiet your nerves. I want to have mine done with so that I can enjoy the rest with a free mind. With these words, Rose began her tale in the good old fashion. Once upon a time, when we were paying a visit to my blessed grandmamma, I saw a ghost in this wise. The dear old lady was ill with a cold, and kept her room, leaving us to mope, for it was very dull in the great lonely house. Blanche and I were both homesick, but didn't like to leave till she was better, so we ransacked the library and solaced ourselves with all manner of queer books. One day I found Grandmamma very low and nervous, and evidently with something on her mind. She would say nothing, but the next day was worse, and I insisted on knowing the cause, for the trouble was evidently mental. Charging me to keep it from Blanche, who was, and is, a sad coward, she told me that a spirit had appeared to her two successive nights. "'If it comes a third time, I shall prepare to die,' said the foolish old lady. "'No, you won't, for I'll come and stay with you and lay your ghost,' I said. With some difficulty I made her yield, and after Blanche was asleep, I slipped away to Grandmamma with a book and a candle for a long watch, as the spirit didn't appear till after midnight. She usually slept with her door unlocked, in case of fire or fright, and her maid was close by. That night I locked the door, telling her that spirits could come through the oak if they chose, and I preferred to have a fair trial. Well, I read, and chatted, and dozed till dawn, and nothing appeared. So I laughed at the whole affair, and the old lady pretended to be convinced that it was all a fancy. Next night I slept in my own room, and in the morning was told that not only Grandmamma but Janet had seen the spirit, all in white with streaming hair, a pale face and a red streak at the throat. It came and parted the bed curtains, looked in a moment and then vanished. Janet had slept with Grandmamma and kept a lamp burning on the chimney, so both saw it. I was puzzled but not frightened, I never am, and I insisted on trying again. The door was left unlocked, as on the previous night, and I lay with Grandmamma, a light burning as before. About two she clutched me as I was dropping off. I looked, and there, peeping in between the dark curtains, was a pale face with long hair all about it, and a red streak at the throat. It was very dim, the light being low, but I saw it, and after one breathless minute sprang up, caught my foot, fell down with a crash, and by the time I was around the bed not a vestige of the thing appeared. I was angry and vowed I'd succeed at all hazards, though I'll confess I was just a bit daunted. Next time Janet and I sat up in easy chairs, with bright lights burning and both wide awake with the strongest coffee we could make. As the hour drew near we got nervous, and when the white shape came gliding in, Janet hid her face. I didn't, and after one look was on the point of laughing, for the spirit was Blanche walking in her sleep. She wore a coral necklace in those days, and never took it off, and her long hair half hid her face, which had the unnatural uncanny look somnambulists always wear. 
I had the sense to keep still and tell Janet what to do, so the poor child went back unwaked, and Grandmamma's spirit never walked again, for I took care of that. "'Why did you haunt the old lady?' asked Anon, as the laughter ceased. "'I don't know, unless it was that I wanted to ask leave to go home, and was afraid to do it awake, so tried when asleep. I shall not tell any story, as I was the heroine of this, but will give my turn to you, Mr. Anon.' said Blanche, with a soft glance, which was quite thrown away, for the gentleman's eyes were fixed on Octavia, who sat on a low ottoman at Mrs. Snowdon's feet in the full glow of the firelight. "'I've had very small experience in ghosts, and can only recall a little fright I once had when a boy at college. I'd been out to a party, got home tired, couldn't find my matches and retired in the dark. Toward morning I woke— and glancing up to see if the dim light was dawn or moonshine, I was horrified to see a coffin standing at the bed's foot. I rubbed my eyes to be sure I was awake, and looked with all my might. There it was, a long, black coffin, and I saw the white plate in the dusk, for the moon was setting and my curtain was not drawn. "'It's some trick of the fellows,' I thought. "'I'll not betray myself, but keep cool.' "'Easy to say, but hard to do.' for it suddenly flashed into my mind that I might be in the wrong room. I glanced about, but there were the familiar objects as usual, as far as the indistinct light allowed me to see, and I made sure by feeling on the wall at the bed's head for my watch-case. It was there, and mine, beyond a doubt, being peculiar in shape and fabric. Had I been to a college wine-party, I could have accounted for the vision— but a quiet evening in a grave professor's well-conducted family could produce no ill effects. "'It's an optical illusion, or a prank of my mates. I'll sleep and forget it,' I said, and for a time endeavoured to do so. But curiosity overcame my resolve, and soon I peeped again. Judge of my horror when I saw the sharp white outline of a dead face, which seemed to be peeping up from the coffin. It gave me a terrible shock, for I was but a lad and had been ill. I hid my face and quaked like a nervous girl, still thinking it some joke, and too proud to betray fear, lest I should be laughed at. How long I lay there I don't know, but when I looked again the face was farther out and the whole figure seemed rising slowly. The moon was nearly down. I had no lamp, and to be left in the dark with that awesome thing was more than I could bear. Joke or earnest, I must end the panic, and bolting out of my room I roused my neighbour. He told me I was mad or drunk, but lit a lamp and returned with me, to find my horror, only a heap of clothes thrown on the table in such a way that, as the moon's pale light shot it, it struck upon my black student's gown, with a white card lying on it, and produced the effect of a coffin and plate. The face was a crumpled handkerchief, and what seemed hair a brown muffler. As the moon sank, these outlines changed, and, incredible as it may seem, grew like a face. My friend, not having had the fright, enjoyed the joke, and Coffins was my sobriquet for a long while. "'You get worse and worse. Sir Jasper, do vary the horrors by a touch of fun, or I shall run away,' said Blanche, glancing over her shoulder nervously. "'I'll do my best and tell a story my uncle used to relate, of his young days.' I forget the name of the place, but it was some little country town, famous among anglers. My uncle often went to fish, and always regretted that a deserted house near the trout stream was not occupied, for the inn was inconveniently distant. 
Speaking of this one evening, as he lounged in the landlady's parlour, he asked why no one took it and let the rooms to strangers in the fishing season. "'For fear of ghostesses, Your Honour,' replied the woman, and proceeded to tell him that three distinct spirits haunted the house. In the garret was heard the hum of a wheel and the tap of high-heeled shoes, as the ghostly spinner went to and fro. In a chamber sounded the sharpening of a knife, followed by groans and the drip of blood. The cellar was made awful by a skeleton sitting on a half-buried box and chuckling fiendishly. It seems a miser lived there once and was believed to have starved his daughter in the garret, keeping her at work till she died. The second spirit was that of the girl's rejected lover, who cut his throat in the chamber, and the third of the miser who was found dead on the money-chest he was too feeble to conceal. My uncle laughed at all this, and offered to lay the ghost if any one would take the house. This offer got abroad, and a crusty old fellow accepted it, hoping to turn a penny. He had a pretty girl whose love had been thwarted by the old man, and whose lover was going to see in despair. My uncle knew this, and pitied the young people. He had made acquaintances with a wandering artist, and the two agreed to conquer the prejudice against the house by taking rooms there. They did so, and after satisfying themselves regarding the noises, consulted a wise old woman as the best means of laying the ghosts. She told them, if any young girl would pass a night in each haunted room, praying piously the while, that all would be well. Peggy was asked if she would do it, and being a stout-hearted lass, she consented, for a round sum, to try it. The first night was in the garret, and Peggy, in spite of the prophecies of the village gossips, came out alive, though listeners at the door heard the weird humming and tapping all night long. The next night all went well, and from that time no more sharpening, groaning, or dripping was heard. The third time she bade her friends good-bye, and wrapped in her red cloak, with a lamp and a prayer-book, went down into the cellar. Alas for pretty Peggy! When day came she was gone, and with her miser's empty box, though his bones remained to prove how well she had done her work. The town was in an uproar, and the old man furious. Some said the devil had flown away with her, others that the bones were hers, and all agreed that henceforth another ghost would haunt the house. My uncle and the artist did their best to comfort the father, who sorely reproached himself for thwarting the girl's love, and declared that if Jack would find her, he should have her. But Jack had sailed, and the old man was left lamenting. The house was freed from its unearthly visitors, however, for no ghost appeared, and when my uncle left, old Martin found money and letter, informing him that Peggy had spent her first two nights preparing for flight and on the third had gone away to marry and sail with Jack. The noises had been produced by the artist, who was a ventriloquist, the skeleton had been smuggled from the surgeons, and the whole thing was a conspiracy to help Peggy and accommodate the fishermen. "'It is evident that roguery is hereditary,' laughed Rose as the narrator paused. "'I strongly suspect that Sir Jasper the Second was the true hero of that story,' added Mrs. Snowdon." "'Think what you like. I've done my part, and leave the stage for you, madam.' "'I will come last. It is your turn, dear.' As Mrs. Snowdon softly uttered the last word, and Octavia leaned upon her knee with an affectionate glance, Treherne leaned forward to catch a glimpse of the two changed faces, and looked as if bewildered when both smiled at him, as they sat hand in hand while the girl told her story. 
Long ago a famous actress suddenly dropped dead at the close of a splendidly played tragedy. She was carried home, and preparations were made to bury her. The play had been gotten up with great care and expense, and a fine actor was the hero. The public demanded a repetition, and an inferior person was engaged to take the dead lady's part. A day's delay had been necessary, but when the night came the house was crowded. They waited both before and behind the curtain for the debut of the new actress, with much curiosity. She stood waiting for her cue, but as it was given, to the amazement of all, the great tragedian glided upon the stage, pale as marble, as with a strange fire in her eyes, strange pathos in her voice, strange power in her acting, she went through her part, and at the close vanished as mysteriously as she came. Great was the excitement that night, and intense the astonishment and horror next day when it was whispered abroad that the dead woman never had revived, but had lain in her coffin before the eyes of watchers all the evening, when hundreds fancied they were applauding her at the theatre. The mystery never was cleared up, and Paris was divided by two opinions. One, that some person, marvellously like Madame Z, had personated her for the sake of a sensation. The other, that the ghost of the dead actress, unable to free itself from the old duties so full of fascination to an ambitious and successful woman, had played for the last time the part which had made her famous. "'Where did you find that, Tabby? It's a very French and not bad if you invented it,' said Sir Jasper. "'I read it in an old book, where it was much better told. Now, Edith, there is just time for your tale.' As the word Edith passed her lips, again Treherne started, and eyed them both, and again they smiled, as Mrs. Snowdon caressed the smooth cheek, leaning on her knee, and looking full at him began the last recital. "'You have been recounting the pranks of imaginary ghosts. Let me show you the workings of some real spirits, evil and good, that haunt every heart and home, making its misery or joy. At Christmas time, in a country house, a party of friends met to keep the holidays, and very happily they might have done so, had not one person marred the peace of several. Love, jealousy, deceit, and nobleness were the spirits that played their freaks with these people. The person of whom I speak was more haunted than the rest, and much tormented, being wilful, proud, and jealous. Heaven help her, she had no one to exercise these ghosts for her, and they goaded her to do much harm. Among these friends there were more than one pair of lovers, and much tangling of plots and plans for hearts are wayward and mysterious things, and cannot love as duty bids or prudence counsels. This woman held the key to all the secrets of the house, and having a purpose to gain, she used her power selfishly for a time. To satisfy a doubt, she feigned a fancy for a gentleman who once did her the honour of admiring her, and to the great scandal of certain sage persons, permitted him to show his regard for her, knowing that it was but a transient amusement on his part as well as upon hers. In the hands of this woman lay a secret— which could make or mar the happiness of the best and dearest of the party. 
the evil spirits which haunted her urged her to mar their peace and gratify a sinful hope on the other side honour justice and generosity prompted her to make them happy and while she wavered there came to her a sweet enchantress who with a word banished the tormenting ghost forever and gave the haunted woman a talisman to keep her free henceforth there the earnest voice faltered and with a sudden impulse mrs snowdon bent her head and kissed the fair forehead which had bent lower and lower as she went on each listener understood the truth lightly veiled in that hasty fable and each found in it a different meaning sir jasper frowned and bit his lips anon glanced anxiously from face to face octavia hid hers and treherne's flashed with sudden intelligence while rose laughed low to herself enjoying the scene blanche who was getting sleepy said with a stifled gape that is a very nice moral little story but i wish there had been some real ghosts in it there was will you come and see them as she put the question mrs snowdon rose abruptly wishing to end the seance and beckoning them to follow glided up the great stairway all obeyed wondering what whim possessed her and quite ready for any jest in store for them end of the ghostly revel Recording by Linda Ferguson